to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. want to welcome regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Good morning, Olga. So nice to see you today. Nice to see you today, too. How are you feeling post 250th? I am feeling ready for another 250 episodes. Which is good. So we can start with James Pepper from the Cannabis Control Board, who has been a regular guest on this show, but it has been a while. So it's good to see you, Pepper. Good to see you, too. Thanks for inviting me back. Well, one reason I wanted to talk to Pepper uh, listeners is because, you know, when we, we did a lot of, or I did a lot of coverage of the process leading up to the state regulating cannabis. And I know Emily and I did a few shows on it. And as a show that likes to focus on the stories behind uh, policy, I, I'm not sure there's more stories than cannabis. And I'm curious, Pepper, I know we still have some regulations and some policies and some rulemaking that we're all working on, but how is the reality of a regulated cannabis market holding up to some of the stories that we told about it going into it? Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting question. Um, I think, uh, our, the reality, I think, is starting to meet expectations. Of course, it's still very early on in this market. Um, you know, we've started issuing licenses just, um, you know, in May of last year. So it's, it's still very much kind of in its nascency. Um, that being said, there are some early signs that um, we're achieving some of the goals we set out. And some of the goals just are... Um, to remind folks, we have an untapped licensing system, so allowing access to the market, trying to prioritize um, small local farmers, trying to um, shift the existing kind of legacy market into a regulated space as opposed to stamping it out, which is what a lot of other states try to do. Um, also to support um, people that have been disproportionately harmed um, by the war on drugs, the decades long war on drugs. And so when you kind of think about those as the guiding principles um, and you look at the kind of licensing numbers and some of the um, revenue um, that's coming in, I think we're starting to meet our goal. So let me just give you a few of those numbers. Um, to date, we've issued um, 544 total licenses. 399 of those are for cultivators. And so about 145 are just, you know, product manufacturers, wholesalers, retailers, et cetera. Um, of those 399 cultivators, 309 of them are tier one cultivators. That's a thousand square feet of growing capacity or less. And that's 77%. So, you know, that's um, a real um, kind of market capture of what was the former kind of legacy market, it feels like. 40% um, of those, um, of all cultivation is indoor, 60% is outdoor. That's an incredible boon for kind of our environmental goals, you know, controlled environment agriculture is just incredibly energy intensive. And um, when you think about the alternative, which is growing 
this crop out in the sun, you know, there's very little carbon footprint. Um, this, this great, great numbers. And we thought that they would actually be flipped just because of our climate here. Um, that we'd have much more indoor cultivation. Um, when it comes to social equity, um, you know, these are again, social equity, and I'm sure we can dive deeper into this, uh, later, but these, um, are licensees that either come from communities that have been disproportionately impacted by cannabis, or, um, these licensees have been personally impacted by, um, cannabis prohibition. Um, so 86 of our licensees are social equity applicants. We actually, because we know that there's a lot of folks that haven't been directly impacted by cannabis prohibition, but have been impacted either historically disenfranchised or just impacted by government led actions as opposed to kind of cannabis prohibition specifically. Um, we created an, another category of licensees called economic empowerment um, licensees. These are, um, you know, licensees that might come from the LGBTQ plus community um, licensees. It might be veterans, uh, women owned businesses. Um, and we have 108 economic empowerment licensees. Um, so so it's, a, it's a good array. I mean, it's not perfect. And certainly, um, you know, there's a lot we need to do to help support these businesses um, and do better. But um, it's a good mix uh, at the kind of in year one. And with respect to kind of how things are going, um, you know, we have data from the first full year of sales. And so from October 1st, when our first retail shop opened through September 30th um, of this year, um, we had 87 million, just over 87 million in taxable sales, which equates to um, 12.2 million in excise tax, new money that's come in. And then five million, um, just over five million in sales tax. So that's um, about what we expected. Um, and you know, I think um, this market is still, again, maturing. And so I think we can expect to see those numbers go up steadily. But um, you know, it, there's a lot of there's a lot that goes into to um, kind of the sales. Thank you, Pepper. What about you and I had been talking on email about Biden potentially recategorizing cannabis. Um, where is that at? And would that impact what we're doing? And before we get to that question, can I add something, um, which I think is sort of this, like the story context for me, because that's sort of like the business environment, right? So this was like such a hotly debated topic in the legislature. The exact numbers that we were expecting was hotly debated, whether like this was good for people or bad for people was hotly debated. Like all of it was just, you know, like decades of debate and certainly an issue of like particular importance and curiosity for Wyndham County, which is, I think, one of the reasons we had Pepper on the show so many times. Um, but what's interesting is that like no one's really talking about it anymore. Um, except for people who are like really in the market. And so what it's become, at least for me legislatively, is like a specific industry that has its specific challenges in, you know, regulatory challenges, licensing challenges, et cetera. And that's now sort of the problem to solve, which I think is really an interesting spin. And so it's an industry with exceptions, right? Like real problems with banking, real problems with accessing, you know, as we saw the flooding this summer, real problems with accessing federal money of any kind or things linked to federal money of any kind. 
And so this like, we're like making this shift. And I think sort of what the Biden administration is thinking is part of how we deal with that shift. So anyway. Back yeah. And, well, no, and it, thanks for that context. I, I totally agree. I mean, my phone used to um, kind of blow up from reporters anytime we, you know, made any pronouncement at all or issued any new license, you know, and now it's, it's quieted down quite a bit. Um, that being said, the, and I'm not suggesting we need full normalization of cannabis, but the kind of idea that um, this is a crop, it comes from a seed, it grows out of the ground. And yet there's all of these kind of regulatory overlays to it. It still certainly exists. I mean, you know, you think about kind of a, cannabis farmers market that seems kind of far out of reach even to this day or kind of you know having a hash bar for cannabis at a wedding for instance you know or at a, at a music festival you know that that to me still feels pretty far out of reach and some of it is just purely the kind of highway safety implications and um you know not having this kind of same infrastructure around detection and enforcement of DUI laws um, with See, none of none of that feels very far away to me that just feels like probably the next step and like but and that, again that's just me living in Wyndham County where we're like you know these things were normalized before they were legalized and so anyway I'm glad to hear that because I yeah. was you know I was gonna say actually you know because of the situation New York found itself in where they licensed a bunch of growers and then um in an effort to uh, kind of prioritize social equity applicants on the retail side, um, they were held up in a lawsuit. So all these growers had nowhere to kind of sell, legally sell their legally grown cannabis. Mm -hmm. They just out of necessity started farmer's markets um, and they did it through kind of emergency legislation and then emergency rulemaking. And they've been a, a wild success. Um, none, none of the kind of you know public safety threats, none of the, the kind of, you know, these are mostly cash, transactions you know none of the kind of none of the the sky didn't fall in new york and i and i do think that you know that provides us a decent model here in vermont um to kind of follow in the footsteps of but um uh with respect to the rescheduling decision um you know biden just for context asked his um agency of health and human services to examine whether cannabis should remain a schedule one controlled substance, which of course is the highest level, um, most restrictive um, schedule uh, in the Controlled Substance Act. And um, they came back uh, a few months ago um, with the recommendation that it should move to a schedule three. And things that are on the schedule three are like um, Xanax, uh, Tylenol with codeine, you know, more traditional kind of prescription medications as opposed to schedule one, which has, you know, heroin and LSD on it. Um, so um, that was the recommendation. This is actually fully an administrative decision unless Congress decides to get involved. Mm -hmm. So that recommendation went to the um, Department of Justice. The DEA um, is reviewing it. They're going to make a final recommendation to the attorney general. And then the attorney general, if they if if they agree that it should be a schedule three, can actually through an administrative process shift cannabis down to a schedule three controlled substance, which has um, somewhat dramatic implications. Certainly, just from a perception wise, stigma wise, you know, moving cannabis out of a grouping that includes you know cocaine and methamphetamines. Um, and moving it down to kind of a more therapeutic um, schedule makes a lot of sense. Uh, I know a lot of 
a lot of advocates wanted it to just be descheduled altogether, um, you know, removed from the schedule. But um, I think that this is a significant step forward, of course. The most dramatic impact immediately is that um, cannabis businesses would be allowed to write off their business expenses on their federal tax returns. I, I, I mean, other Ow. than that, it, which would be huge. It would be a, a shot in the arm for every single cannabis business that's paying, you know, not just, um, you know, an incredible amount for banking, insurance, you know, no, no, no business loans, no financing. Um, they also have to pay all of their taxes on all their kind of cost of goods sold and employee wages and rent. You know, they don't get to write any of that off on their federal tax return. So, so that is just money in their pocket o- overnight um, and, and a real boost for, for these struggling businesses. Cause sure. Like, you know, there's a demand for cannabis, you know, it's kind of like, how could a cannabis business fail? There's such a huge demand, but, but really, you know, when you think about all of the regulatory um, costs and, you know, the, the fact that these businesses don't have access to lines of credit or capital, you know, this is, this would be a lifeline to them. Mm-hmm. Just out of curiosity, can cannabis businesses in Vermont, uh, write anything off on their state taxes? They can, yes. And I, I can't say, I can't give any sort of advice on that because, you know, I, it's also just not an area of my expertise, but there's a whole section of the tax code that, uh, the state tax code that um, kind of exempts them from 280E on their state filing. But it makes them, I mean, this state taxes are paltry compared to federal taxes exactly. or anyone, right? Everyone knows that for their own personal taxes, but there's also most state taxes for folks who are sort of filing in a more ordinary situation. The bulk of your paperwork just travels through to your state filing. And so if you're in a particular category and cannabis isn't the only category, um, folks without social security numbers, for instance, would be another category you have to like basically create a whole new package of paperwork just for your state taxes, which is pretty labor intensive um, because you are having sort of two different filing systems. And so would that, would that schedule change have any impact on banking at all or insurance? Not not, um, that we are aware of. Um, Not not that I can see. I mean, it will increase the ability um, for kind of traditional research. Um, You know, pharma, big pharma could come in and start. You know, it's it's much easier to possess and and use um, cannabis schedule three for clinical trials and things like that. And then there's also the criminal like kind of mandatory minimums in federal crimes uh, for mm-hmm. you know, trafficking schedule one drugs versus schedule three are, are vastly different. So, so there are, there are some kind of second and third order benefits um, to being schedule three, but I don't think the banking, of course there is, there was kind of a historic moment a few months ago also where safe banking for the first time ever passed out of uh, passed favorably out of a Senate committee. Um, of course, then, there was the whole Speaker of the House debacle. Um, and so the House, which has passed safe banking, I think nine times already, is now the holdup to safe banking moving forward in the Senate because it's not, it's got an, it doesn't have a clear path anymore. Mm-hmm. <sighs> that would have um, kind of given the same protections that credit, you know, state charter credit unions, it would extend those 
pretty okay. much to national banks, which, which, you know, doesn't, again, really change the dynamics because you still have to, if you even if you are a, a federally charter bank, you'd still have to put in all the same kind of compliance and suspicious activity reporting, um, you know, requirements that you, that, you know, the credit unions have, but it would increase the number, the purely the number of banks that would be willing to bank cannabis funds. And hopefully that competition would drive down fees. Okay. So for the work that the Cannabis Control Board is doing right now, Pepper, what are you seeing as far as opportunities or challenges on the horizon? I always am concerned about supply and demand, of course. That that is always a big one for us. I mean, when we created our kind of market structure and our tiering of licenses, um, we really were doing it... Um, you know, without knowing how much entrepreneurial interest there was going to be, we we kind of were able to discern, and it's it's seeming like relatively closely what the demand for cannabis is going to be. Um, obviously, it changes based upon um, a number of policy factors, but um, there are uh, you know trying to determine whether we're going to have you know six big companies want to come in and kind of dominate this market or three hundred and nine thousand square feet, you know, legacy cultivators come in and try and saturate this market was a big question mark. And of course, it's all related to how much regulatory burden are we going to place on them, what the cost of running one of these businesses is going to be, and also what the price of cannabis is. And, we, you know, we have an uncapped licensing system, as I mentioned. And so, you know, we created some big, some larger tiers, just thinking that, well, we have to supply the demand and, you know, maybe we might need a larger tier. Um, and, but I would also just note that our largest tier that we created was kind of a tier three out of 11 in Massachusetts. So it's, it's all relative, but um, we didn't want to run into the problem that we're seeing in Oklahoma and Oregon, you know, Oregon, you know, just license people um, without any sort of real th- concern about supply and demand. You know, they didn't want to kind of force the the market in any one direction. So they're now producing way, way too much cannabis and there's a price crash every year. And so they put a moratorium on new all new cultivation licenses. It's been in, in effect for over, you know, four years. Oklahoma, they just did a recent supply and demand analysis. Um, you know, they have very low barriers to entry, very low fees, no kind of um, regulatory burden. They're they're creating, they're they're cultivating 64 grams of cannabis for every one gram of demand, which just you know is an unsustainable market. And so, if we are gonna, you know, what we did very recently um, is we closed. We have six tiers of cultivation. We closed. Um, four, five, and six. Um, so uh, the next kind of entrance into this market will all be in the kind of tier one, two, or three, the, the tier three being 5,000 square feet of cannabis. That'll be the largest tier available to new entrants. And so can I just want to sort of refresh my memory and the memory of anyone listening here. So what I remember is that sort of you originally opened up just those tier one, two, and threes um, when the market started and then sort of opened up four, five, and six, and now you're closing them back again. Is that, can you help me? With yeah. That? Yeah. So the first, the first three months, I think it was three months, it was just tier ones that were allowed to enter. Um, and, um, so, so they, they got a little bit of a head start and this was really aimed at trying to get 
them in, especially the outdoor cultivators, as soon as possible so they could take advantage of the outdoor growing season in year one. We, you know, after a few months opened up tiers, we we always left tier six closed. We we had that kind of in our back pocket in case there was zero entrepreneurial demand and we were falling well short of our um, supply targets. So we opened up, uh, you know, two through five um, a few months later. Um, we decided uh, to close five, you know, earlier this year. And then at our last board meeting a month ago, we decided to close tier four as well. And we're still contemplating, you know, we, we understand that um, there are going to be, you know, successful people and there are going to be kind of people that need to get out of this market that are unsuccessful. And that, that you know, this, this, we may need tier fours, but our, our thought is at least for now, close it out, you know, and then if we can kind of form benchmarks um, that a tier three could hit, you know, if they're using 100% of their canopy and they're selling, you know, at least 80% of their product that they might be able to graduate to a tier four. So something along those lines, we're, we're still trying to figure out the details. I mean, Massachusetts, they have kind of the opposite system where they'll license you at a large tier. And if you're not using 100 or 80 percent of it, or if you're not selling at least 65 percent of your product, then they claw back that excess unutilized canopy. And we kind of want to move in, in the opposite direction where you have to start small. And you can graduate to a larger tier um, if you're successful. So just want to make sure my my understanding is in in the right place, Pepper. It, it sounds to me like one of the reasons you're concerned about supply and demand is that to some extent, are these state markets still kind of closed in the sense that they're marked by state borders? It's not like someone can be selling, growing cannabis in Vermont and selling it in California, uh, like you could a sweater or a pair of socks or something like that. Yeah, that, that's right. I, I mean, because of the, the Schedule 1 status, and this would be true even with Schedule 3, um, it, you know, whatever... Cannabis is sold in Vermont, has to be grown here, has to be tested here, processed, packaged here. Um, we can't rely on cannabis that's grown out of state to meet our demand. And on the flip side, we can't ship cannabis out of the state if there's a drastic oversupply. So it's a very fine line that we're trying to walk here on supply and demand because we don't want prices to be so high that um we don't want to have an undersupply and prices are so high that consumers don't want to you go to the regulated market. And we also don't want prices to be so low that our cultivators who are literally risking all of their kind of private capital can't, can't be successful. So, um, you know, it's very much a managed market as a result of that um, kind of federal status. I wonder, uh, as this market goes on, what it will teach us about our own economy in Vermont. <laughs> since it is you know stuck to the borders yeah it's the only um you know for any other commerce issue we are absolutely prohibited from restricting it within the border so it is a really interesting experiment i have uh, lots of questions about processors and retailers but i can wait on them until after the break if that makes sense olga or Let's if we do have that yeah because we're just down later. to to five okay. five minutes but yes i have questions about testing and and processing as well since we do have only a few minutes before the break, Pepper, you were talking about challenges and opportunities. What are some of the opportunities that you see? Well, we do have one of the most exciting, I'll just say the most exciting small market um, in the country, just given the 
way that we went about licensing people and the way that we already had the best growers in the country here in Vermont, certainly on the East Coast. Um, we have a reputation for having the best um, cannabis in certainly the East Coast. Um, and the fact that they were willing to jump into this market and, um, you know, fully participate in a regulated market just means that Vermont has this amazing opportunity to kind of take advantage of uh, this expertise. I'm not advocating for any of these things, but there are any number of issues that uh, or any number of policy decisions that the legislature could make that would fully kind of or, or allow for a more mature market and allow greater access for these cultivators. And, you know, special events is something that people are starting to figure out. You know, I mentioned New York has their farmers markets. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, a special event uh, festivals, um, you know, where we can kind of allow these cultivators to really showcase uh, their products um, would be great. Um, you know, we have to figure out, I think we have to figure out, it doesn't have to be uh, next legislative session, but somehow to uh, on-site consumption. Um, I think that's, you know, it, it harkens back to when we kind of allowed home grow. It's like, well, where, where, where are the seeds and the plants coming from? Well, don't ask, don't tell. And and that's kind of where, where we're at with consumption is there's literally no legal place for a tourist and our, and our market has quite a few, a lot of tourists to legally consume cannabis. Um, so the kind of whole hospitality industry is I think the kind of next phase. And, and once we can figure out some safety rails around the kind of highway safety concerns, I think we can get there. Um, yeah, I really, you know, when I think about um, all of the local breweries and a few local wineries and how important that flight is for mm-hmm. how they engage with folks and how they really show their product even to each other or to retailers, that seems like a really important part of just like exactly like you said, like really sort of getting the word out and making sure that consumers understand what products are being grown and sold. I, produced. I, I mean, absolutely. I, I just uh, I don't understand how if we are moving towards federal legalization, which it feels like we, we're there. I mean, it's still at least a half decade away, probably longer. But, um, you know, these companies need to f- get their client base and need to establish their brands. And, and um, it's really challenging um, in this environment, especially with our advertising laws um, for them to do that. And um, so I, I do feel like having more direct access to uh, the market um, is how they're going to be able to do that, how they're going to be able to tell their story. So, um, and we're always, you know, we're always trying to figure out how to better support our smallest cultivators because their operating costs are fixed. They, they just, and, and these are folks that spend a lot of time. They spend the most amount of time of all the members in the supply chain with the plants, um, you know, putting in the work, uh, the, the kind of one-on-one time with their plants. And yet um, they're making the least amount of money. So um, how, how do we support the kind of tier one cultivators and um, make their business more profitable? And, and also, you know, to a large extent, they've never been in a regulated environment before. So then the notion that they need to register a product or get a kind of certificate of analysis um, or kind of follow very strict packaging and, and labeling guidelines 
is all new or even kind of start a website or kind of put together an employee manual. So um, trying to find ways to support um, these smaller businesses in this new industry is also a, a challenge and an opportunity. Thank you, Pepper. We're out of time in the first half of the the happy hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. But stay tuned. We're going to hear from some underwriters and then we will be right back with James Pepper from the Cannabis Control Board. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I am your host, Olga Peters, and I'm speaking with regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser, who's one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro, and James Pepper, who is heading up the Cannabis Control Board. And you guess what? That's what we're talking about is cannabis today. I want to thank BCTV for sharing the video version of our show with public access uh, and community media centers around the state. You can also find us wherever you subscribe to your podcast, just FYI. So, Pepper. Oh, no. Wait. Wait, Emily. Wait. I have a part to play. Yes, you do. Views and Opinions Expressed. The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, respectively, and not the station, platform, friend, nor employer. Well done. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Next time, Pepper, though, you're going to have to say that one. Instead of your I'm fifth getting, time I'm jacket. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, you, you left out pets and birds and, um, you know. <laughs> I do pet sometimes. I do. Yeah. Today. Okay, you you are officially anointed, Pepper, as being on the show enough to to know Emily's spiel. I'm I'm I applaud you. So before the break, we were talking about some of the challenges and opportunities that you were seeing in the the cannabis market as uh, it stands now. Now, Emily, you had some questions around processing and testing, I believe. Yeah. Um- Pepper, you listed sort of the number of all the other licenses other than cultivation. And I was curious how many of those licenses are in the processing um, space rather than the retail space. And if you could just tell us more about what sort of the processing looks like. I remember concerns about um, some choke points in the supply chain related to processing. And then I'm also curious about sort of the value added product processing and how that's how, how that is going. Yeah, it's it's actually going pretty well. I mean, there we have um, 63 product manufacturers um, licensed, which is a good number. Um, you know, they're they're mixed. We created three tiers, and essentially, one is a home based product manufacturer. If you just kind of need some supplemental income, and you you've got cannabis, you can um, kind of make some cookies, do some pre rolls, do do uh, you know little little projects. Um, and it's a very low barrier to entry license type. Um, you know, the tier two product manufacturer is allowed to use any extraction methods except for the ones that, in, that require kind of a explosion safe room, you know, the kind of uh, volatile solvents. 
Um, then the tier three can use any extraction method, including the uh, volatile solvents. Um, the vast majority of our product manufacturers are tier two. Um, and I think they're doing a great job. We have, um, I think, over 3,000 unique products registered in Vermont. Um, so there's a great diversity of products. Um, and, you know, we did kind of one of our major rule changes um, this year uh, was around um, kind of potentially hazardous foods. Um, this is something where, you know, it's just a shortcoming of our of our staffing and not the staff themselves, but just our staffing and our partnerships with other agencies. We, we don't have the ability at the cannabis board to certify commercial kitchens. And so when it comes to um, foods that require strict kind of pH levels and temperature controls and um, safe handling, um, we just aren't in a place where we can kind of um, oversee that safely. So, you know, I know there's a number of product manufacturers that wanted to make things like ice cream, THC infused ice creams, THC infused um, like barbecue sauce, THC infused uh, kind of beef jerky. And we just uh, are not at a place Gross. quite yet. <laughs> I, well, listen, I don't want to. Really I'm sorry. I don't ever water. wanted to no. do that does not hear me say that. The ice yeah. cream sauce sound great. I I don't know what it is about the beef jerky. Okay, how about okay. how about take and bake raw cookie dough? You know that, that that's yes. one. Yes. Okay. Okay. There you go. Um, and, and I actually feel like um, with some kind of co-training um, with the Department of Health, uh, maybe bringing on some kind of kitchen experts, we could certify certain licensees to do certain activities. Maybe not the full gamut of a um, commercial kitchen, but uh, certain types of kind of temperature controlled um, processes, get those in place. Um, so, you know, again, I, I've always liked to just come back to this isn't a fully mature market where we're at the very beginning here. And I think we will get to kind of the full uh, unleash the full creative economy here. It's just going to take some time. And then what about um, sort of the part of processing that's like the drying or the extraction? Um, what does that part of the market look like? How many players are in it? Is it sort of regionally dispersed in a way that's working for farmers? Yeah, the farmers are allowed to do a lot of that on site. Um, so the cultivators are authorized to do certain activities and they can dry, they can make pre-rolls um, on site. Um, they can sell in bulk to kind of wholesalers or product manufacturers, but it's really the manufacturers that are doing all the extraction. So that those 63 um, licensees are in charge of that. I mean, they're pretty well distributed around the state. The one part that's really tough for especially people down in Wyndham County is that the two testing facilities, um, the only two in the state that are allowed to touch cannabis are up in Colchester. So, you know, it's a full day of travel for anyone down south trying to kind of get their products up there. And, you know, there's just, because again, cannabis can't cross state lines. There's a bunch of labs in Massachusetts that'd be more than willing to test that are a lot closer. Um, but uh, we just don't have that ability. And so people are mostly drawing on site and then doing their own extractions for their own products. They're not sort of selling extractions to someone else who's going to process. Is that what you're saying? I think, I think you're seeing a lot of variability there. Okay. I think it's very dependent on, the, I mean, in order to do extractions, any sort of mechanical extraction, you need a processor license. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a, certainly a number of cultivators that also have a manufacturing license of one of the three tiers. 
And I'm asking because I remember that when we were actually passing the laws, there was a lot of debate and nervousness about we were going to have, you know, it'd be harvest time and we wouldn't have enough processors distributed well enough um, or enough sort of drying facilities on site that we were going to have just sort of like a glut of moldy weed. And that has not materialized quite as much. And this is the kind of this is, you know, we're in the kind of post-harvest, you know, er, er, time frame right now. And this is the the crunch time for the labs and the product manufacturers. But but uh, a lot of the cultivators have found clever ways of kind of either flash freezing or, or doing certain things to uh, kind of maintain the quality of their cannabis while they're waiting in line for a product manufacturer. But we do have a decent number of them. Um, so we're in decent shape uh, when it comes to that piece of the supply chain. Mm-hmm. That's great to hear. One concern I hear come up over and over again, and it's which means it hasn't been answered for folks in my mind, is the the levels of THC in different products, and that they are they are higher than what a lot of people grew up with in say the sixties, seventies, eighties, even nineties. Is the state having any conversations around that? Or like um, the levels this, of THC or? Yes, this is kind of a perennial um, issue uh, in the legislature. I um, The Canada Board is that, there, so there's three THC caps right now. There's a 30% um, cap on THC in, in flour, smokable flour. There's a 60% cap on THC in um, uh, solid concentrates. And then there is a five milligram THC cap um, and then uh, on edibles um, per serving, and then a, a hundred um, in the package. And, you know, those to me um, were policy decisions that are they're aimed at trying to not have kind of a, a, a drive towards just, you know, kind of juicing a, a product with THC, um, which is the psychoactive component of cannabis. Um, we're one of very few states that have either of those first two caps. We're pretty much online or in line with uh, most states around the kind of five milligrams per serving and the hundred milligrams per package. Some some states have ten milligram cap, um, but um, really, I, I mean, I mean, the, I understand the concern, um, but the way that I have framed it in the past, and I think is legitimate, um, is that. The whole purpose behind having a taxed and regulated product is that it's safer. Um, it's labeled. Mm-hmm. It's labeled. tested. You make informed decisions. You know what's in it. Exactly. Um, you know, I mean, to create a solid concentrate, you're using some kind of extraction method, which leaves behind residuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so why, why leave that lane for solid concentrates Especially when you think about like and, you're using. Sorry, pepper. Solid concentrates. Is that like for vape, vape pens or? No, I, I, that that would be a liquid. Yeah, that that falls under the liquid concentrate, and and I think the legislature recognized that um, you know just uh, leaving the illicit market to to supply the demand for vaping cartridges was a was a very bad idea. It was demonstrated during the Uvalde crisis. It's a very bad idea. But the same logic applies to solid concentrates. I mean, you know, dabs, shatter wax, the, yeah. those types of things. Um, and and really, you not um, knowingly, like as if you know what all of those things mean. I do know <laughs> what those things are. <laughs> okay. 
you know, it's just kind of like, it's better to just know that, that it's been through some regulatory framework um, and, and, and that what's on the label is accurate and there's no kind of concentrated pesticides in there. There's no concentrated adulterants in there, contaminants. Um, I'm not saying that they're healthy for you or that you should be using them. Um, but I do feel like a regulated product is always better than an unregulated product. And I think that the real conversation should be around how they're marketed and advertised, you know, have very strict controls around them um, and just allow and a lot of education at the point of sale about what they are, what their impacts are. And probably if you're, you know, first time consumer, stay away from them, Um, you know, but uh, I just don't, you know, so again, like I don't see this issue changing anytime soon, just because the, the the stars have not aligned on removing any of those caps anytime soon. But um, or at least historically, but um, you know, we're, we'll certainly make the argument um, once again. Um, what it seems like it would be very hard to grow to such like an exact percentage specification, and so. What happens when someone is growing and it winds up testing too high? You can send it to extraction. Well, (laughs) if it does test too high, I mean, there are ways to remediate that by blending it um, for like a pre-roll with with something else, uh, a lower THC. Um, There are, you can send it to extraction so it can become inedible. I mean, 30% really, you know, it's, somewhat of a natural ceiling. I know that the growers just go crazy every time I say that because uh, certainly you can get above that, but you really have to be focused on just that and and not trying to kind of create a thousand square feet of it is really just kind of like, so that one to me is not quite as important, but it it is just, an, it's not there for any other reason, except people are a little bit nervous about high potency cannabis. Well, it's interesting, you know, in the context of sort of Vermont's beer market, like I don't really like very hoppy or very strong beer. I really like like a fruity flowery Pilsner and like fairly low alcohol in it. And I know like, I don't know if I'm going to get kicked out of the state for saying that, but like, I don't like my beer to punch me in the face, right? Like I like to have a more subtle experience of it. And it's interesting, this assumption that things would sort of become a race to the most extreme rather than sort of meeting like a diverse market demand where people want, you know, very different sensations from their cannabis or very different flavors or very, you know, I'm, I'm with you like, there. I, I mean, you can't buy gummies that are like, as we like, you know, she's cutting her gummies into like six because that's how low a dose she wants. And that works for her, you know? Yeah. And the fastest growing demographic of new consumers are people over the age of 50 that are trying cannabis almost sometimes for their first time or largely for their first time. And they really don't want that. And then there's also um, kind of a growing understanding amongst um, consumers that other aspects other than THC are what are kind of enhancing the experience, the terpenoids and the, and the lesser cannabinoids and not just THC. And, and so really, I think the future of the market is not just trying to grow the highest potency THC, but then again, the THC is where the money is. And that's so like a grower, you know, whether it's going for smokable flour or not, wants to create as much THC because that's essentially what they're purchasing their license for is um, trying to. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the cap just, it, it, there's no real logic to it other than the kind of fear that, you know, just like high ABV alcohol is just kind of 
bad for society in general. It's kind of a societal norm, I think, that were that, that was put into place. Yeah. Um, I have sort of some like Brattleboro um, question reality checks. One, you know, when we started having CBD for sale at the Brattleboro Farmers Market, like it was intense, like people's reactions to it was intense because the entire market area smelled very, very, very strongly, um, like including the parking lot, right? Because it was like freshly harvested. It was sticky. It was, you know, and people were seeing it, but like everyone's gotten over it now. So I feel like if something, if the exact same product that had THC in it showed up, the shock and awe of it all, I think has passed. But I'm wondering about retail and the number of retail establishments. And it kind of boggles my mind when I'm sort of like driving out more in our strip mall areas, how many establishments there seem to be. And I just don't understand how they're all going to stay in business. And so I'm just like, how is that working? How is that looking? It seems like new retail establishments are still opening in established, fairly established markets. What is that all looking like from your perspective? Yeah. And this is an area of concern for me, you know, by the numbers, I think we've, I think there's 67 um, retailers that are open. And I think there's 13 more uh, licenses that we've issued. So uh, that haven't opened yet. So I think 80 is the number currently. There are 13 in Burlington. There are, I think three, including a medical dispensary in Brattleboro. I think it's more than that pepper. It could be. It could be. You know, what we do is every week or every board meeting, we we publish the kind of areas of density okay. of retail to try yeah. and like signal to retailers, hey, you right. might not want to go to Brattleboro. Like they're they're saturated. But you know, this saturation, these areas of density are a direct result of a policy decision that the legislature made that a town does not ho- cannot host a cannabis retail establishment. unless their citizens vote to allow it. And so we have, I think, maybe 80 or 90, I can't remember the exact number of towns that allow it. And then the rest, the other 200 and, you know, 190 don't. And so you're seeing, you know, pockets of retailers that are unnatural. You know, I, I say that there's 13 in Burlington. Well, there's zero in South Burlington. There's zero in Williston. And that's because they haven't opted in yet. Um, and I don't even know if they know to opt in. You know, I, I just, you know, I try and get the word out as well as I can. But, you know, there's no way Burlington can support 13. And I know there's probably more in the pipeline. And again, the, the we're not trying to have too heavy a hand in kind of controlling this market. But really, the folks that are starting these cannabis businesses are putting up a lot of their own private money and their friends and family's private money. And when they crash out of this um, because of they can't sustain themselves, you know, it's very personally devastating for the for the owners of these licenses. So, you know, I, I one thing just for the health of the market is I would like to see that opt in provision switch. So you're presumptively in unless you vote to be out um, of the retail establishments. And I think that would lead to a much more geographically diverse setup and a much more sustainable setup. And also there are kind of cannabis deserts out there or legal cannabis deserts where you have to drive kind of 30 miles round trip to get to a dispensary. And what areas, what areas of the state are that? I think there's one in Roxbury 
But other than that, within like a 30 mile like radius of that shop, there's zero, I think. Um, and, you know, the kind of south of the north, like the southern part of the northeast kingdom, there's one in Bradford. But, you know, I don't, I don't think there's anything more until St. Johnsbury. Um, you know, it's it, it's not like and the, the problem that we have also is that we're the authority that we were granted was not to cap the number of retail stores in a given area. We were allowed to just say no new retail applications period we could do that but it would be statewide so we would have to just decide that the 13 that are in burlington those are the only ones that are going to be there the you know the the existing the status quo is going to be the permanent the permanent status well and i don't think that's yours to do i mean i have been surprised looking at putney road and brattleboro to be like why would you open a third shop here like what what makes what motivates someone to do that but it's also something that happens in a lot of other markets too right like why is there why are there three italian restaurants and no mexican restaurants like (laughs) you know like what makes it's like people have people have the dream of the business they want to open and whether the market is already sort of saturated with it you know you believe that what you're selling is better and so you jump in pepper you can correct me but i think one thing that's interesting about our little kind of corridor of wyndham county is i don't remember what the votes were, but at one point, I think both Wilmington and Dover were considering opting out of having any retail. Wilmington does have retail. Okay, Wilmington Wilmington does, does, but I do think that there is a question about whether they should subsequently opt out. You know, I I think, you know, because you can opt in and then later opt out and then they, whatever's in your town will stay, but, you know, you won't have any new ones. Mm-hmm. Well, my, my think... point being that it it shifts where you can even have the businesses if your surrounding towns yes. have opted yeah. out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and on that hammer, <laughs> <laughs> we have just about five minutes, Pepper. And I don't know if there's anything else around retail you want to add, but I'm wondering, we haven't really heard a lot about the medical marijuana side of or medical cannabis side of the market is there anything happening there that folks might want to know about there is and i'm glad you mentioned it because honestly you know the medical is the most important aspect to the market which is this is service serving the most the, the patients that rely on cannabis as medicine as opposed to kind of recreationally and the medical program historically has been under the Department of Public Safety. And, you know, they were kind of a reluctant uh, home for, for that program. And so they didn't update the program continuously over the years. And that's no criticism of them. You know, they've got other priorities. So the board has endeavored to really update the program. We had a we had kind of a technical amendments bill last year that made some really critical changes. But this year, we're going to submit a new report to the legislature that really tries to kind of fundamentally update the program because it is on the ropes. I mean, their patients are in decline. Um, the number of patients on the registry are in decline. The locations around the state are, are largely inaccessible. You know, there's six locations around the state and, you know, most people have to drive a, a long way to get to access one. Which sucks when you're sick. <laughs> it really does. And, you know, I'd like to give a shout out to the, I think it's Brandon Dispensary, which does deliveries all around the state, which is um, a huge benefit um, to the patients. 
But we've been holding a series of stakeholder meetings over the summer and fall. We're about to kind of finalize our draft recommendations to the legislature for a report due in January. But we're going to look at the process of adding new qualifying conditions. Our qualifying conditions list is very short and it really to add a new qualifying condition requires requires intense advocacy on behalf of patients that are suffering, you know, to get out of bed, make it to Montpelier or zoom in now to kind of talk about cannabis and overcome this basic threshold, which is a schedule one controlled substance. The definition is it has no medical uses. So, you know, legislators and, uh, and policymakers can just look to the schedule one and say, well, I'm not adding this for a new qualifying condition because there are no accepted medical uses for cannabis. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at kind of how other states add new qualifying conditions and how you can kind of remove the politics of that process, remove politics from that process and kind of really be evidence-based. We're also looking at the possibility of having some of our adult use retailers that are willing to do certain kind of jump through certain hoops, whether it's, you know, adding plans for patient privacy, adding kind of specialty products that aren't available in the adult use market to their kind of shelves, you know, having increased education. If you're, if they're willing to do that, then maybe they can kind of have patients shop at their stores tax-free, which would require a legislative change. But that's kind of one, one issue that we're looking at as well. And then, for some reason, well, I know why, but medical products currently don't need to be tested except for potency. So no heavy metal testing, no contaminant testing. And so we're going to update that as soon as we can, but we also don't want to increase costs for patients. So we're going to look at ways either through the state lab that's being created or through subsidies to help kind of cover the, that testing added expense. Thank you. That sounds great. We unfortunately are out of time on the Montpelier happy hour, but I want to thank James Pepper from the Cannabis Control Board for joining us today and nerding out over cannabis with us. James, if people want to learn more about what your board does, where can they find more information? Our website is ccb.vermont.gov. And from there, there's a, a button you can press if you want to be added to kind of our newsletter. We're also on, I think, Instagram and Twitter. If you just look for VTCCB and we're on all of our meetings, everything we do is on YouTube as well, going back to the very first days of the cannabis board. So if anyone wants to go on a very long, very boring journey, <laughs> you do it, just type VTCCB into YouTube and kind of see us from our very early days. Yes, cannabis was one of those issues as a reporter. Every time I went to write a new article, I, I'd, I'd have to remind myself, wait a minute, didn't we regulate this yet? We've been talking about it long enough. Hasn't it happened? <laughs> anyway, Emily, if people want to learn more about your work or get in touch, where can they do that? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org, where you will find links to all of the various ways to get in touch. Thank you. And as always, the Montpelier Happy Hour is on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station every Friday at 2 and rebroadcast Wednesday morning. You can subscribe to us wherever you find your podcasts or uh, drop me a line at the Montpelier Happy Hour at gmail.com. Take care, everyone. Have a good weekend.